0: Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark, mark my words, I, Paul, tell, that, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will have be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for the agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other.
1: I'm not sure, and this is no criticism, I think it's just Presbyterian culture, that I'd never heard a Presbyterian sermon on that. I'm not even sure where it might have been where I started to think about it in any seriousness. When in a chaplaincy, we decided in one of our groups to think about what we might do for Lent. We brought in Father Gary because we thought Father Gary might know a little bit more about Lent than the Presbyterian chaplain would. But it seems to me that we should consider it and we should um, use it in some way. And I'm not sure that this year, under my leadership, we'll be using it in a particularly intensive way but as a result of the busyness of Fitzroy life, the series that I was going to uh, preach through Lent, which was going to see most of you reading the New Testament in six weeks, we had to put back somewhat. So on Wednesday, when we met for prayer on a lunchtime, you'd be very welcome between one and two if you're around the area and you have a lunchtime to come and join us. Um, I had no sermon for Sunday nor series between now and Easter. I was a little panicked especially because Richard and David were already asking on Tuesday night for the worship for Sunday. And then it seemed to me that I wanted to use Lent, and I wanted to use it in a Lenten way, that idea of self-critique, that idea of some sense of repentance and uh, looking inward um, in that kind of way. But some part of me feared that a little bit, Because of the way many Presbyterians might be brought up in this part of the country, where really we whip ourselves, we beat ourselves in any kind of self-critique at all. And yet, it's an important issue. So how was it going to go about that? So I thought of the seven deadly sins, and I thought that would be deadly. I thought the seven deadly sins, Stockman could really go deep there, and we could have a lot of very damaged Fitzroy Presbyterians in a few weeks' time. But at the same time, the seven deadly sins are alive and well and are serious issues. But I drew back from that kind of idea. And I decided we would look at the seven deadly sins, but we would look at them from a slightly different angle, a more positive angle, Rather than look at these sins to tell us by Easter how horrible and messy and useless little worms we are, because many of us know that and don't need to be told it from the front of a church, or know it actually to the point where it's not true, we actually see ourselves as far worse than we are. I thought I would use it in a context of Galatians that we've just uh, Jenny has just read to us. If we read that very first verse of chapter five, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You see, that was my fear, that by preaching these in a certain way we would become enslaved to them again. Whereas what Christ was trying to do was set us free from them. And I'm not sure within Presbyterianism, I mean those uh, among us who are from a Catholic background, Catholic guilt's got nothing on Presbyterian guilt, especially the further up Antrim you go. Um, it becomes more and more guilty. Um, you have no idea. And a friend, a uh, uh, Actually, somebody who was over doing one of Rose's summer teams from Seattle one time, it was Youth Reach a long time ago, and I was doing a seminar, and this guy said to me, Steve, and I'll not do the American accent, it would, uh, it would just go pathetic. Um, uh, Philip Orr will not be using me the way he used some of you this week. Um, but uh, he said to me, Steve, I've been here a month, and here's my confusion. Catholics, they tell me, believe in works, and they've got to do things to get right with God. But they seem to be able to have a good time. And Presbyterians who believe it's by grace and they don't have to do anything to get right with God seem to be so seriously trying to get right with God that they can do nothing. And I thought it's a really wise, profound insight into how we maybe take right theologies but unbalance them to the point where they damage us rather than set us free. So I decided, can we look at the seven deadly sins in some other slightly twist of an angle, seven enemies to free souls, to our freedom, the freedom that Paul wants to talk about in Galatians, where we know we are, as I've said before, and we'll say again and again over my ministry here, we are positionally holy because of what Christ has done for us. We are justified by grace, not by works, positionally holy but we're not so practically holy. At least my family would be able to tell me I'm not as practically holy as I am positionally holy. And could we use this time of Lent to try and increase our sense of freedom? Are these seven deadly sins, not those which make us first and foremost guilty because we have no reason to be guilty anymore in Christ, are they obstacles little bit like the ground that some of the seeds fell on earlier? Are they the weeds and the thorns that stop us from reaching our spiritual fulfillment? Could we move in that kind of way and look at them in that kind of way? My uh, history teacher taught me little, but one thing he did teach me He said, every great person knew their weaknesses and worked in their weaknesses. Now, why I picked that up, I've no idea, but I've never forgotten those words. He was talking about some king, no doubt, in the middle of the 15th or 16th century. See, I can't even remember what century I was studying, but they're wise words. And so if we as a community and as individuals want to move through Lent and say, right, how are we doing spiritually? Where is the fruit of the Spirit within us? How is the good seed beginning to grow? Maybe we could see this in the light of those obstacles that come, those thorns that come to stop us reaching our fulfillment, not to make us feel worse about ourselves. So what are the enemies to free souls? In fact, if we look at salvation, um, and I've always, um, certainly in Union College, when I went there and they started to try and teach me Greek, I could go over every week the things that I know nothing about, and you'd be saying after a month, who were the hearing committee that called that dude? Because he seemed to do badly in everything. Uh, Wasn't very good at uh, languages, though Greek was better than Hebrew, at least it went this way. Um, But I was told there that the Greek word for salvation is actually the word for wholeness. For healing and being made whole. And so what we should be asking ourselves as we move into this Lent, can we over these next few weeks just look at a few things that might increase the possibility of our full potential, our wholeness as human beings? Who we were made to be who Christ redeemed us to be. And in that context of Galatians, freedom in Christ, let's begin to critique, knowing that we're loved and knowing that this all is set in love and in positional holiness. So whatever I say over the next weeks that might strike a chord with us, it is not so that you might feel insecure about your faith. It's so that we might help you towards Life in all its fullness. What order do you do them in? I have no idea. But I decided this morning to look at envy very briefly after that introduction. Envy is mentioned twice here in Galatians chapter 5. Looking up Wikipedia, um, it occurs when a person lacks another's perceived superior quality, achievement, or possession and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. I think that's why in Galatians 5 here today, it comes in twice. It comes in in those acts of the flesh in verse 21. One of the acts of the flesh is envy in verse 21. But then at the end, in verse 26, Paul writes, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And I was thinking, how does it become part of provoking? Well, the definition tells us envy, I guess, is when we look at another person and we want to be them, and we envy them for whatever it is that they have that we feel we don't have. Or it's part of that which says, rather than wanting to be them, I want to make sure they're not them. And we start to dismantle them, perhaps. So there's two things going on, one that damages us, and one that is a possibility to damage fellowship or the other person, envy. And it's there right from the start. In fact, and I'm maybe reading into this slightly, but I'm going to take us back to those first chapters of Genesis. uh, When I was at Regent College uh, doing my sabbatical, which was the first place, by the way, that I started to learn something. I was only uh, 44 or something when I decided I like this education thing. Um, uh, Daryl Johnson was uh, teaching preaching and Daryl oh, Johnson can preach and he tries to teach preaching. But actually after half a class with Daryl Johnson, I said, this man is not encouraging me to preach better. He's encouraging me that I'm useless at preaching and I should give up because he's so good at it. But Daryl said, As he was thinking, as he was telling us one day, I don't know how he wasn't preaching through Genesis in the class, but uh, he came to that that bit where uh, in those Genesis where humanity reaches to try and reach beyond itself, to become something more than humanity is. You know, the temptation to be like God, and to know everything, and and all of that. This temptation to be something other than we are, something more than we are. In reaching to become something more than we were, we became something less than we were. In the reaching to be something else, we lose who we are, Jesus. In trying to gain the whole world, we forfeit our souls, or in some translation, ourselves. In trying to reach for something more than who we are, we always end up damaged and less than who we are. And I think that's what we're talking about in Envy, the perception that we're not settling for who we are, we need to be somebody else, we need to be better than who we are, we need to have more than what we have, those kinds of things. Exodus 20, Ten Commandments, don't covet, don't envy, don't want. And I think what we have to understand about those laws are that those weren't laws that God set down just to beat us for no apparent reason. I've done it before, let me do it again because I love doing it if I did for some reason lose this job, I would put a red coat on happily and give anybody that parks in a double yellow line a ticket. Because it's not to spoil our convenience or fun. It's so that traffic can move. It's therefore a reason, a positive reason, not a negative reason. And so it seems to me when God told the people not to covet. He knew that by coveting, by envying, we were going to damage ourselves. We were going to lose ourselves. And so, he was encouraging and advising that we didn't. Love in 1 Corinthians 13, it does not envy. In the message, um, Eugene Peterson paraphrases that, it doesn't want what it doesn't have. God wants us to be free from this envy, from this unsatisfied, from this, I suppose, our inferiorities and our insecurities come because we perceive others, we envy others. God wants us. To know that in ourselves and in who we are, that's enough. So, who are blessed? It's not the rich or those who have more. It's the poor. It's those who settle and don't need or strive. It's the meek. It's those who mourn seek ye first the kingdom of God that we'll be looking at tonight, and all these things will be added to you. Well, can we say from what we've read already this morning that the things that are going to be added to us are not the things we enviously see in other people? So what then could they be? They could be the fact that we don't need the things that we see in other people, that the things that are added to us are the things that make us content in who we are, the fruit of the Spirit is, it's not envy. The risen, fulfilled human being that you can be will never get there with this thorn or obstacle or enemy of envy. And here, I guess, is where it comes true. to say it to my students, but I say it to us all. Grace. Is grace a term that we know, a belief that we have, or an energy that changes how we see ourselves? So when you look in the mirror, has grace any part in the space between you and the reflection? Is it a sieve, a lens? What's the metaphor I'm looking for? Is it the something that you see differently what you see in the mirror? Because in the mirror you don't see all the things that other people don't have or all the things in other people that you would like to see reflected it back. But you look in the mirror and by grace you give yourself unmerited favor? Because God has. Do we see ourselves in the mirror as God sees us? Because God loves us as we are. Can we love ourselves as we are? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now I know there's psychotherapists, psychologists, and all kinds of people out here this morning, and we're going to get into outside of theology, into other kinds of things here. But I think, actually, that there's something of the practicalities of this that are really, really important for us. And I think that in the culture that we live in, I have no idea what it would have meant in Galatia to envy others, and I'm sure envy, we've said, has been there since the beginning. But in the world that we live in, is there not a heightened sharper, more acute possibility to look at others and say, oh, for that extension. Oh, for that hair color. Oh, for that hair. Oh, for the lack of hair. Whatever it might be. In the world that we live in, there seems to be soil that envy could really have a harvest in. And we've got to at this Lent time and every other time begin to look deep within ourselves and start to use the theology of grace and love that we believe in in order that we would root out that thorn, those weeds, that enemy, that obstacle. Because it will come in the way of our blessedness, of our fulfillment, of the fruit of the Spirit harvesting the way it should. The middle of Galatians might give us some answers. The middle of Galatians 5, 14. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, which envy can do, watch out, for you will be destroyed by each other. This can damage The other it's more likely to damage the self and what it does in both is prevents us from being the potential of all that Jesus would have us be so I guess our homework let us look deep into ourselves this week and prayerfully consider where are those little bits of envy they might be subtle But let's really seek that the Spirit would help us deal with this for our good, that we might reach our full potential. Let's pray. Lord, these are every day, every moment, scenarios. They're emotions, they're decisions. They're things we decide in our mind and our spirit. We pray, Lord, that even over these next seven days that we might really wrestle with this obstacle, enemy, thorn, weed of envy. Help us to be honest with each other, Lord, as we sit at the outset. Help us to be honest with you and right at the outset, more importantly, to be honest with ourselves and really by your Spirit Rip these things out of our lives to set us free. You love us as we are. You're loving us into who we can be. You don't want us to be anybody else, Lord. So help us to come to terms with the wonder of how you made us and the wonder of what you redeemed us to be and help us to tell ourselves that that is enough. We don't need to be anybody else. Search us, O God, and help us to find and live the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.